Hello and welcome to a special guest edition of LCS Podcast. This episode will be presented by me, Tosin Adiosin. I'm a researcher and curator, and I'm also the founder of African Style Archive, a platform via Instagram dedicated to documenting African fashion history. This episode is recorded as a part of my collaboration with LCF and the Fashion Archives, alongside my LCF Instagram exhibition in May 2021. For this episode, I have with me Dr. Christine Chikinska, who's the curator of African and African diaspora fashion at the V&A, and is also the lead curator of the forthcoming Africa Fashion Exhibition, opening at the V&A Fashion Galleries in June 2022. Prior to joining the V&A, Christine worked as a women's wear designer, academic, artist and curator. Her creative practice and research explore the relationship between fashion, culture and race. Welcome to the podcast, Christine. Hi. Uh, Hello, nice to have you here. So today we're going to be talking about your background, career and African fashion history on the continent and in diaspora and also your personal relationship with fashion. So I think it's only fitting for me to ask to start with how and why did you begin your journey of being a curator and educator of fashion from Africa and African diaspora? Thanks for that great um, opening question. I yeah. think well, my, my first degree is actually fashion design. So I have a degree in fashion and printed textile design. And so I've been working in the industry for over 30 years, right, right up until joining the V&A. There was a certain point where maybe 20 years ago or more, I just really found myself with lots of questions um, you know, I was known in the industry for being an English look designer, and I'd worked at very senior levels with a few English look brands. Um, and I was at one point, I was principal designer for one of these um, these British brands, if you like, that sold a, a, quite a Victorian notion of Englishness with sort of frilly blouses and leg of mutton sleeve shirts and so on. And someone said, it's so great that you're head of design because you're not exactly an English rose. Oh. And that is exactly. So <laughs> quite controversial. But yeah. it, was meant, it was meant at the time in a positive way. But it, it, I think it sort of rattled me and I think understandably rattled me. And then literally a couple of years later, I, I found it was still rattling me and I was yeah. still designing sort of the English look and I I would I was doing things like going off to Vogue House to to represent the particular brand I was working for and people would look past me almost as though I was the person that was bringing the head of design and I just so so that brought up ideas about or questions about what we mean by Englishness in dress what we mean by Caribbean-ness what we mean by Africanness in dress and where did I fit? And where um, are stories of people of colour within fashion history and fashion theory? Um, and so that was really what sparked it. And I went back to art school and I did an MA and then a PhD. And it was while I was doing my PhD at Goldsmiths, um, one of my supervisors, um, who they become like your head coach in a way, when, yeah, when you're yeah. doing a PhD, you know, your, yeah. your partner in crime. And she said to me, you know, because I'm, I'm so quite visual and, you know, I'm practice background. She was the one that really encouraged me to explore curating. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first entry into curating was um, I became an intern at INOVA, the International Insti- Institute for International Visual Art. Yeah. Um, and I became a curating intern there while I was doing my PhD. And that was really my first experience of curating shows and gallery education and just working in that kind of arts environment beyond being a designer so yeah yeah so you were working as a designer even before you became a curator oh my goodness yes yes I mean long before so I think when did I go to Goldsmith so I did my PhD I started in um 2003 I think it was and finished in 2009 so I'd already been working for something crazy like 15 years in the fashion industry before I took myself off and did all of that Um, and then I I had this kind of multi-stranded career for many years before joining the V&A last summer Um, so I, I, I did a lot of juggling but I think you know the practitioner in me needed to design 
the the researcher in me needed to research, you know, and I got into writing and curating and, um, you know, just the common thread has been fashion and the power of creativity to transform or to allow us to speak about ourselves in, in the way that we want to be uh, heard, really, you know, so so that's that's the common thread throughout all of the different things that I've done in my career, I would say. Yeah, that's amazing. I also like that um, you haven't had a sort of conventional path because um, usually I feel like with a lot of fashion curators, especially you hear like they, you know, got a master's, got a PhD, got a job straight in, you know, working in some archive or as a curator but you've actually had this breadth of experience working in the more fashion field and designing and working on, you know, the more technical aspect of it. So it's it's really great to have that, you know, diversity in your experience and to hear about that. It's really mm-hmm. reassuring because I know quite a few people who would want to, you know, maybe thinking about curating, but start it later in life or and it's just inspiring to hear that, you know, you can do that. And you've done that as well. So that's super, mm-hmm. super great to hear. Um, you mentioned your PhD and I actually did some research into your PhD before and the title and I was so um, fascinated about it. Um, so I probably not do, I'm probably not doing this justice because it's not my PhD, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> your PhD titled <laughs> Colonizing in Reverse, the Creolized Aesthetic of the Windrush Generation. Um, mm. could you just talk, talk me through, um, what it was about, and the brief summary and how you came about choosing the topic. What was the process like working on it? Sure. So, in fact, on on, on the back of this, um, you're not exactly an English rose. As I said, <laughs> there are all these there are all these sort of questions, and and so, in fact, the PhD it was very much rooted in my own experiences, and it was partly inspired by my father. Um, my father was always a snappy dresser always very well turned out and I have memories of my father um, having um, suits made always in English wool often a three-piece suit with the waistcoat the trousers and the jacket matching he had tremendous knowledge about tailoring knowledge about fabrics Um, and we didn't you know I didn't come from a very wealthy family so these suits were bought on we used to call them call it HP so higher purchase so it was paid for in installments over weeks but the way that he put yeah the way that he put himself together was so central to who he was and you know people would describe my father as a gentleman and he had a gentleness about him but he also dressed in this very discerning way and that was important to him and I found myself and he was Jamaican and I found myself thinking, well, why, why did dad look like that? Why did his friends, who were also from the Caribbean, look like that and have this, this real passion for looking good? And why was it so central to them? Um, and so these are some of the questions that I wanted to unpack um, with the PhD. Mm. And so it was kind of about the Windrush generation why did those men, dad came in 56, which was the the height of migration from the Caribbean was in 1956. So dad was part of that, that bigger wave, if you like. And I wanted to understand how those guys came to be dressed in this. It's almost like a kind of Savile Row meets Zoot Suit yeah. way. Eventually, you know, through research, I realized it was this kind of creolized aesthetic that, that yeah. drew on um some kind of um african influences some new world influences some american influences some british in- influences because of course yeah. jamaica was still a colony um and so in unpacking some of those images and i did a lot of oral histories work as well with with elderly gentlemen who would who would come to me and i would say tell me about your life but tell it to me in the clothes through the clothes that you wore and yeah. I had these one, and it was a real honor to hear these fabulous, still kind of dapper men telling me about the clothes that they wore. Um, and they would, it was beautiful actually, because some of them would bring the garments that they wore on arrival that had oh, been laundered. They kept it. Laundered, they kept them, laundered, put back in bags. I remember there was one particular man um, who had a shirt that he wore on arrival and it's been laundered and put back in the cellophane bag 
that he bought the shirt in and he's kept it all that time. You know, I had a, another man that had a hat, a trilby with a feather, and he's kept it in the hat box. And he brought that to the, the discussion I had with him. And so I looked at that moment, but I used that moment to then go back. So I used Windrush to go back and to track a kind of genealogy of the way, why, the reasons why men looked in that way in 1948. And I found myself researching um, enslavement and dress. Mm. Um, and this idea that creolization, although, of course, the plantation um, society, it was cruel and it was, it was a horrendous thing, but it was also creative. So within that tension, there's also a will to survive. And with that will to survive is a will to adorn and a will to speak about yourself. And it's kind of rooted in self-respect, I think. And this idea of personhood, I think through dress, often people that don't have a voice or feel that their voice has been taken away or their culture has been taken away. Fashion and dress can be a way of speaking about yourself. Yeah. You know, it can really allow you to ignite that creative spark within and say something about yourself. And often it's it, the root of it is I'm human, I'm a person, and it allows you to do that. Um, so it was really fascinating. And it was quite hard to do that research back in, starting in 2003. So it was, it was before archives opened up. It was before this whole field of research kind of opened mm -hmm. up. And I remember ringing a particular museum, and it wasn't my new mu museum, but I'm not going to say which museum it was, because cool. um, that would be a bit cruel. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember sort of beginning this journey in 2003 and ringing up one of the British um, national museums um, and explaining on the phone to someone what my research was about. And I wanted to know whether they had anything that might relate to enslavement address in the Carib in the British Caribbean. And the person on the other end of the line laughed. Oh my God. The person laughed, which of course, I, that, I don't think that would happen today, no. 20 years later. Yeah. But then it seemed to the person on the phone, like such a bizarre thing to be researching you know um so it, it was it's interesting it's been an interesting journey having started back in the early noughties you know in, in 2000 and well it was 2000 and 2000 actually because I started this work in my MA yeah. so I, I didn't do my MA until 2000 and I started this research in the year 2000. Yeah that's so it's so interesting um obviously the experience you had at the the museum that you inquired was not great, but just interesting to see the comparisons in the years, like 20 years difference and seeing where we are now with this. Um, I think mm. there's still a lot more work to do, but compared to then and with a lack of archives and I guess the internet not being what it is now, um, mm. I'm just in awe that you were able to start that back then and carry on with it. So it's, it's, it's a great thing <laughs> that you've been doing. Um, I think my next question was on um, fashion as a form of liberation and intuitive empowerment, which you actually have touched on. Um, mm. But I was just thinking more, I think there's been a lot of conversations, which I'm so happy about, um, about fashion as a form of liberation, from, you know, talking about where black people were enslaved and um, to liberation movements, the civil rights movement, the independence and post-independence eras in Africa as well. Is evident from looking at the photographs and doing research that clothes and style was an important tool of expression and resistance yeah. as well. Um, I was just wondering if you had any more anything else to say on this topic. Um, is there any research that you've come across that's not your work as well, or if you wanted to expand more on the work you've done that you could share and talk about? Yes, I guess um, maybe some of the other people that I think have looked oh. at. Um, um, enslavement and dress and a few scholars spring to mind Buckridge and I can't think of his his first name now but Buckridge's book I think was really pivotal and it looked at dress in Jamaica and he has some wonderful research around dress on the plantations also of course Monica Miller and her work Slaves to Fashion I mean again really pivotal which I think came out in 2009 and for me it's still one of the, you know, it, it's actually a pinnacle in, in my view in this field. And I, I, if I'm teaching, I always use that book as a foundational 
texts for people to begin this journey. And then I think the other book that perhaps one of the first books I read was White and White Styling. And I think that that came out in something like 1998. So one of the earlier books. But what's exciting now is the way that this field is opening up. So you have wonderful resources like the Fashion and Race Database. Um, And so you can tap in at an international level so you can see who is researching what, you know, and often I found that it's the African-Americans that I think are a little bit further ahead than us in terms of grappling with some of these these things that we're discussing now. And it's wonderful to see the way that things have opened up. But as I say, I think for me, the person, um, the persons that I admire the most are probably uh, Monica Miller, Carol Mm -hmm. Tuller from the UK, um, and I think White and White. Those are the ones that I really think have opened up or laid the foundations for the field. I think maybe the other thing that I would recommend, particularly on this idea of liberation and empowerment, of course, is Tanisha Ford's Liberated Threads. Yeah. I mean, how wonderful is that if you've read that? I'm literally that. staring at it's my career right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fabulous. Yeah. And it's such a great read. Mm. You know, and, and I love the, you know, the way that she takes a fabric like denim and sort of tracks that right from its sort of workwear origins through to it being the fabric of the revolution or the fabric of rebellion. Um, And it's so much a part of everyday life. But I I think it's really interesting, this idea that, um, because there's some thinking about the the psychology of dress, there are some writers from, you know, the the early 20th century or mid 20th century, like Irving Goffman, that was doing research into um, dress within confined communities whether that's in institutions whether that's in prisons or it's in you know where freedom is taken away or yes personal freedoms are constrained in some way so whether that's a psychiatric hospital or a prison but Irving Goffman wrote about this idea of the presentation of self as an act of freedom and I think he was an an early influence on my work because again working in the 2000s there wasn't very much out there so I I discovered Irving Goffman and this idea of the presentation of self in everyday life I believe is the book's title actually I think it's so ingrained in me but just this idea that when things are taken away human beings will always find a way to individuate themselves so you might just be given a prison uniform for example or in the plantations you might just have been given your your Osnaberg your your rough linen shirt for example but you will find as a human being you will find a way to individuate yourself whether that's to customize that shirt whether that's to you know borrow should we say borrow something yeah. from the master and put with that shirt or yeah. it's to pull in a, a you know a cast off old military jacket or and it, you combine that with something from your own heritage so on the plantations you get this wonderful and I, I hesitate in using the term wonderful because mm. and so yeah. it's not wonderful but you get this idea um of a creolized aesthetic that's drawing on your past something that you might have kept with you or something that references your African heritage and then you combine that with what is there the new the new so the linen the cast off military costume it might be that you have something that references Africa in a headdress or something that you have made yourself out of scraps but human beings will always try to individuate themselves well and I think it is it it makes you stand a little taller if you can do that. I think that's the power of fashion, the power of dress and the power of creativity. Because I think once upon a time, we were all artisans. We were all makers. Yeah. Historically, right? We were all makers. Mm. Yeah. I resonate with that so much about um, being able to make, you know, your own individual out of your clothes and, making yourself different even though you might be wearing a uniform and I think back to when I was younger um, I've got a sister who's two years younger than me and my mum would dress us up in the same outfits like twins even though we were like two years different Um, I remember at the age of about seven or maybe six between six and eight and I was just like 
and I don't want to do this anymore and would be going to church because that was obviously going to school you wear a uniform and church was the next kind of event on a Sunday maybe some party on a Saturday and my mum would maybe dress up in the same t-shirt but one one person's would be blue and the others would be pink and I was just like even though it's she was like it's different but I remember being like it's not I feel like I'm wearing the same outfit as her and I wanted to wear my own outfits from such a young age I was you know fighting for that individuality in how I dress and how I express myself and I remember just being like I don't want to look like my sister like I want to be myself and I think I've carried that through life with me um, until now and even with how I dress it's still so important how putting on a nice outfit that makes me feel good if I'm not feeling good can really change um, how I feel or the day or you know just getting a nice compliment from somebody about like just something you're wearing is just nice as well so yeah it's so important how you know fashion and the way we put clothes together and style really expresses individuality and then in light mm-hmm. of that I want to ask you so what is your personal relationship with fashion and style is it something that's more than just work for you um or like how, what how how do you feel about that that's a great question and it's interesting mm-hmm. because um, someone else asked me a similar question quite recently, and I realized that um, myself and my kind of design peers, I think oftentimes as designers, particularly if you're working for um, a high street brand or a mid-market brand where you have to, it's all about dressing the customer yeah. and you're you're working in the field, you often, or at least I do anyway, I've discovered that I have a uniform and I find that my uniform is all about the dress and it's not really because I know exactly it's not really because of notions of femininity it's more I'm quite practical so I put a dress on and I might layer it up with a pair of huge jeans underneath but a dress you put it on it's one piece you're good to go and, and that kind of suits me yeah and so I I feel that if you opened my wardrobe you would find just rack after rack of often indigo, navy blue, big dresses that I kind of always wear, a bit of a uniform. But I, you know, and so I've carried on that sense of wanting to look individual, you know, and that's everything from my hair right down to my love of the dress because it's like a uniform to my love of sneakers and flat shoes. So I think it does say something about me. This yeah. need to be creative, but also to be practical. I need to yeah, move around. Yeah. I don't like, like feeling a big right. thing to you, but still like it being stylish. Oh yes, I still like being stylish, even though I I've got a uniform. I think yeah, <laughs> it's quite alarming when you open your wardrobe and you realise that you just actually keep buying the same thing. Yeah, well, I think it's still you know that's still your personal style, and it's so interesting. I love having these sort of conversations with people especially about the relationship with personal style. I think not a lot of people think about it, but it's actually deeper than we realise. And that's what I enjoy so much about the work that we do and having these conversations. So that's so great to hear. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing more of your your dresses. <laughs> Hopefully we meet one person. Yeah. I think my next question was about something that I've kind of experienced in the couple of years that I've been in this industry. And it's about isolation in the field that I have I have felt and I was wondering if you'd maybe because our experiences could be different and have you maybe felt like the lack of working with black curators in this field has it maybe impacted your experience or is there is it has it been different for you what's what's been what's what's, what has been your experience yeah I mean I think starting in the 2000s Mm. Um, even though I probably came to curating slightly later. I think the thing, the route that I took was to align myself and to to immerse myself in, then it was Black British art. And so I I immersed myself in the work of Sonia Boyce. I immersed myself in the work of Lubaina Himid. And that's what, for example, and that's why it was important to me to do the internship at Innova. Yeah, And so in terms of finding people, excellent creative curators of colour, 
that was what I did. And I, I went to everything that Innova was organizing. This was before I worked for them. I went to every talk I could. I went off and discovered if Sonia Boyce was speaking, I went off and listened to her. Stuart Hall was still alive yeah. then when I was working, when I was starting this research. And so anything that Stuart Hall was speaking at, I would go there. And so I feel that although then I didn't know Lubaina Hamid and I didn't know Sonia Boyce, but for me in 2000, between sort of 2000 to 2009, they were my mentors, they were my community. Even though they didn't know me, I would go and it was just wonderful to go to an Innova event in the 2000s and be surrounded by a sea of people of colour that were all so creative, whether they were artists or writers or curators. And they became my community and I felt a part of that. And I would go and it was almost like going to these events and I would get a fix, if you like. <laughs> and then I would go back, <laughs> go back and do, what, do my own work and apply what I was yeah. reading, what I was listening to, to fashion. Because mm -hmm. there were not, there weren't people. I didn't discover Monica Miller until 2009. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and um, Buckridge around after that, and so a lot of my research came from mingling with um, and you know artist communities. The other space that I took myself to was literature, and um, hilariously, I used I joined the MA Caribbean Literature. I think it was Caribbean writers, Caribbean and. Um, comparative literatures I think it was called and I just joined the MA course and hilarious wonderful, wonderful um Professor Joan Anum Adu who's now a great friend of mine oh, <laughs> at one point she sort of said to me who are you because you're not, you're not, you're kind you, of not one of us. you just go in to sit the letters I just used to go. <laughs> and That's she great. Like, Who are you? And um, she was brilliant. And so, but those lectures that Joan Animado did, yeah. that I just basically gate crashed while I was at Goldsmiths. Mm. It was really welcoming. But that was foundational to my thinking mm. because she was teaching me about Cesare. She was teaching me about Fanon. Yeah. And I, so you find other ways. I mean, I think that that. So I have a kind of creolized approach, if you like, yeah. to my research that I, that stayed with me, this kind of uh, almost mixologist's approach yeah. to research. And I think that that's what's given my work its particular character. But I had to do that because there was so little there when I started in 2000. Yeah, that's, that's so great to hear because I feel like I've basically done the same my MA was in art history and museum curating and photography. So not even anything fashion related, but I still like incorporated that into my dissertation. My MA dissertation was on the photography and the everyday through the photographs and the black cultural archives. And then obviously mm. through that, I talked about outfits and the Windrush generation and just, and compared just age groups and still fashion and style came into that. And even through, yeah, like you said, finding networks in the arts and like black and people of colour, um, just talking to those sort of, just people that work in the field really and having such a nuanced approach to everything. I think that's really helpful because mm -hmm. I used to be of the belief that I had to go to fashion school, do a fashion MA or fashion cur like curatorial course or anything to, to be a legit fashion curator, you know, and I've come <laughs> this far and done you know, and I mean, something that's still of interest, but still ties in together. So mm. I really, I really like, respect you for, you know, doing that and sitting in those lectures. That's absolutely something I would do. I think I've actually mm. done that before um, <laughs> at Courtauld. Um, it was like, I think it was a student guest lecture and Tanisha Ford and Kwame Braffitt came um, just before the pandemic. And I think everyone that went was actually students in the end. And I was maybe one of the few, maybe one of two people. And they were introducing themselves and they all knew each other. And I was just there like, was I meant to be here? <laughs> like, So it was great. It's just, you know, I I really resonate with that. And I think it's such a great way to to get into what we're doing and fill the gaps mm. that we're experiencing. So that's mm. been 
that's that's great to hear you've done that <laughs> yeah and I think the in the next thing I wanted to ask was so in the work that we do as you know fashion curators educators um what do you enjoy the most I think the thing that um that's quite a hard question <laughs> but I'll, I'll go with the first yeah. thing that comes mind I think for me I still get excited when um an emerging talent whether that's someone that is just starting to curate or whether that is one of the design students that I've taught in the past or whether it's someone that doesn't really know or they're stuck and they turn up to one of my events and then they keep coming back and they keep coming back and they find their creativity and they find their path. I think what excites me is allowing someone else's, and often it's a, a, a young woman, often it's women and it's yeah. someone younger than myself. I think I have a, a heart of mentoring and education probably, <laughs> but I still get excited when I see somebody else um, find themselves and apply their creativity or to rediscover their creativity yeah. and start to um, harness that in whatever way and start to excel in whatever route they are taking, whether they want to go off and design or they want to go off and write or they want to go off and curate or they just want to be creative just for the sheer joy of it. I like to see that spark being ignited. That's what I think drives me. That's great to hear because that's basically what I did with you. <laughs> so. I just emailed you and emailed you until. <laughs> oh yes, you did. Yes, <laughs> like we have to know each other. <laughs> yes, really I, I do. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Yes, you yeah, did. Not, it wasn't all in vain. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I just like I like to see people thriving and flourishing and yeah. and and being their kind of becoming their integrated selves somehow and. Um, yeah, discovering their creativity. Mm. Yeah, amazing. And so what has been a challenge? I know this is, this is another hard question maybe, but I'm intrigued to know there's been a particular challenge that you faced in this career path or anything that you kind of struggle with. Mm. It's interesting because I think that there, there must be challenges and there, there have been challenges all the way through. Yeah. But um, somehow I've been able to overcome them. And I think it's I've overcome them by um, following this this desire to create or this need to create. And I think that that's that's the, the creativity is the common thing across all of the different aspects of my working life. I think perhaps one of the things that I've struggled with the most in all of the different areas, actually, and it's this issue around I feel that the modern world and particularly the fashion world, particularly the fashion industry, which yeah. has been my in my my working life, my main source of income up until last summer, I think that it's set up um, to almost not see the quiet person or not to understand the quiet person. And I know I've been sort of talking a lot today, but I always have felt throughout my career and throughout my life that I've been I'm often the quiet person in the room I I feel you know that has been the thing that I've had to learn to embrace and to see as a strength and I think what helped me to see my quietness and my need for stillness and, and, and sort of gentleness as a strength someone gave me um, that wonderful Susan Cain's book Quiet and that made me start to kind of rethink this idea because I think that the world almost tells quiet people that they're that there's something wrong with them, yeah, or that yeah. they should be, they should be more assertive, they should be louder, they should be taking up more space. Whereas I think that there's great power in quietness, and I think that quiet, the flip side of quietness, or the the close cousin of quietness, is gravitas. For example, mm. another close cousin of quietness is the ability to listen. And I think that that quietness and ability to listen is absolutely shaping the work that I'm doing at the V&A now. Yeah. Because I think that I spend days listening to fashion creatives on the continent, listening to their stories, how they want to be represented in the exhibition. 
I've spent years listening to often it's Caribbean elders about their stories. Yes, it's through dress, but actually I'm hearing their stories and people need to be heard. And there's something wonderful empowering in that exchange for both of us. So I think that probably the thing that I've had to overcome or the, the, the tough thing has been the, the fashion world not necessarily valuing quietness and having to learn to value that myself. Yeah. We've spoken a little bit about um, being a person of colour, um, being of African um, diaspora heritage and where is my creative, my community of creatives. But I think I overcame that and that was really empowering by finding people like me. And I, I was really fortunate in 2019 to go to Theaster Gates's Black Artist Retreat and it was an incredible, I mean, it felt quite re- miraculous, to be frank, at the time, because it's an invitation-only retreat, and you had to be nominated for it, and I was nominated for it, and I thought, my goodness, I- I'm going to have to go, as I'm quite a Theastergates fan anyway. I thought, I've got to somehow go, and Tosin, it was just an s- extraordinary experience, because there I was, on the what felt like on the other side of the world, on the one hand, in New York, but then on the other, it felt like coming home because I was surrounded by literally hundreds of black creatives, black intellectuals, black people with ideas. Mm. And I honestly, that I'll never forget that experience. And it was just over a long weekend. And I will never forget it. It was so empowering. I felt like coming home. And I remember that at one point, he was amazing, Theasta Gates, because he went around and was making sure everybody was fine. And I just remember at one point just saying to him, oh, thank you. And I'm sure he probably thought, who on earth is this strange woman? You know? <laughs> but I just had to say thank you. Yeah. Um, because it was an extraordinary sense of coming home. And actually, a few months later, I applied for the role I now have at the v That's amazing. So that was only recently. Recently. Yeah. 2019, 2019. Wow, it sounds like such a dream, you know, just, and even though it was only a weekend, but you, you speak of it with such like fun memories. Yeah. Sounds like you're going to hold on to that for a long time. Oh, yes. I mean, it, it was powerful. And I'm still in touch with some of the artists that I met um, during that weekend. But it for me, it was kind of pivotal. And I think that that's what I would say, particularly to scholars and creative people that are just emerging is that you have you have these different stages in your life so you constantly grow and you have numerous pivotal moments or numerous kind of you know Damascus road moments where moments of enlightenment or moments of better understanding or clear understanding about yourself and your practice it's it's not just a one-time thing it happens over and over again. You carry on growing. Nothing in life stays the same. But I would say that as a as something as a way of encouraging young mm. people. I think that nothing yeah. stays the same. It's a constant reshaping and refining. And I think that the Black Artists Retreat in twenty end of twenty nineteen was perhaps the latest uh, refining moment for me um, and sense of community and empowerment. Mm. yeah that's, so do you have to you said you had to be nominated for it is it like a how how does one go about going attending it without being nominated? Um, well, is it? Do you, I don't think you can I think you just have I don't really understand I mean I I it's still to this day feels like quite a miracle yeah <laughs> I mean I don't see that as I, miracle. I see that as of course yeah. nominated <laughs> yes I was I, thank you but you know and also because it's it's primarily it's 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 um, artists and curators and writers. Mm. It's not really a fashion thing. Yeah, but I, yeah. I guess there's a strand of my research though that writes about and, and and I'm often in conversation with artists that that happen to use fashion and textiles in their work. So yeah. you know the kind of Susan Stockwalls or the Barty Palmers who have this kind of crafting and making with cloth aspects so there's a lot of my writing has actually been more in in that vein yeah mm. and I think you met you you just mentioned um artists that work with cloth and not even related to fashion or mm. and textiles 
Who are some of your favorite artists? I'm just that wasn't on my question list, but I'm just intrigued. Oh, my favorite artists. Well, I, I mean, I would have to say I do. I'm really struck by Theaster Gates and his use of crafting, and also his kind of social justice side. I find very inspiring indeed. The textile lover in me loves Faith Ringgold, for example, oh, in her story yeah. quilts. I love all of that. I would say, and um, I do. I think in terms of her work with museums as well as her art practice, I think that Lubaina Himid is really inspiring also. Yeah. Um, so I think those are probably the people that I I get. It. And I, I love, I absolutely love Barbara Walker's drawings. Yeah. Um, it, would be, I, it would be remiss if I didn't mention that. I mean, I, I remember when I first saw her working, and I, I think she was, it was an exhibition in Nottingham, and if people don't know her work, she draws directly onto um, walls and different surfaces. And it's it's usually the black figure, um, a monumental scale. And then she wipes the wall, walls clean at the end. So it's about visibility and invisibility and so on. Yeah. And I remember going up to see the first time I went to see her actually physically working. And I don't know, I didn't expect that she would just do these monumental drawings with a regular soft pencil just you know being a designer I I my fashion illustrations are always done with just a soft pencil and I do it all by hand I don't do anything yeah. on the computer but I was still surprised when I went I don't know what I thought she used to make these incredible <laughs> drawings yeah just a regular pencil <laughs> regular pencil that I use you know um so I, I think her work's is astonishing and I, and I love the way that she cites Giacometti, for example, is an influence. I, I, so I like that, the way that she, you know, has this broad spectrum of influences that she then brings to her drawings of Black people. Oh, so, yeah. so it's a real mix yeah. of people anyway, yeah. that I, I, I love. So but, mix, uh, such an inspiring mix as well, just shows your excellent yeah. taste. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're welcome. And so we're going to talk about the V&A now. And I was just wondering if you could, if you're willing to share any information about the forthcoming Africa Fashion Exhibition, just a little teaser for us. I could share a little teaser. So, yeah. so the exhibition Africa Fashion, it's going to be opening in June 2022 in our fashion galleries, um, so in that sort of central fashion area. And what we're aiming to do with Africa Fashion is to consciously celebrate the irresistible vitality creativity and innovation of a selection of iconic designers, collectives, stylists and influencers that are working in Africa today. But our jumping off point is the independence and liberation years. So the mid 1950s through to 1994, the end of apartheid, which could be seen as a, a period of African cultural renaissance. And we want to situate fashion within that wider context of art and culture. So we'll be looking at a marriage of fashion, music and art throughout the exhibition. But as I say, the ground floor, because of course that fashion gallery is split across two floors. The ground floor, the focus will be independence and liberation. The mezzanine will look at contemporary creatives. And what we really want to give people is a glimpse of what I see as a really exciting fashion scene. But it's one of abundance and one of unbounded creativity. And I think we strategically want to blur boundaries, um, those artificial boundaries between north and south, east and west, to take a kind of corners of the continent approach, knowing that we'll only ever be able to give a glimpse because it's, yeah. it's a continent, yeah. 54 countries. So we'll have, you'll see menswear, you'll see women's wear, you'll see accessories, but all in this sort of wonderful marriage between fashion, music and art. So I, th I hope that it becomes this immersive piece. But one of the things I'm really passionate about is the public aspects, the, the audience side. So we launched the exhibition super early, actually, for the VMA. So we launched it in January with a public call out for objects. So, if, so the, the public can contribute potentially to the exhibition family portraits, which is something that um, we've had a chat about, haven't yeah, we? You, yeah. you sent us some of your family portraits. So yeah. family portraits that show fashion in the independence period 
cine film that shows it. We're specifically looking for designs by the mid-century designers like Chris Seydoux, Kofi Anser, Sade Thomas Baum, uh, Neymar Benis and Al Fadi. So we, we've put a call out to people that they're former customers or models that perhaps have their garments in their wardrobes because we really want to make the exhibition as collaborative as we can and we see it very much as a people's exhibition uh, this wonderful conscious celebration of African creativity really but seen through fashion. Mm. Yeah it sounds amazing and I can't wait to I know it's a year away but I can't wait for that to fly by um, and see this amazing exhibition and I'm also happy that it's happening at this time as well. Um, I just feel like it's it's been long needed. So it's it's just a great time for it to happen. And I just can't wait to see what the team put together. So really excited mm-hmm. about this exhibition. And I completely, completely support and trust your vision of it. So I have no doubt it will, it will be great. Thank you. Well, I think the thing that underpins my vision is this desire to foreground multiple African voices and perspectives so I like the idea that I you know the, the quiet person in me yeah. sing, appears and allows people to speak and I, and I think that it's not something that I have to put on because I think that that's been my natural way all of this time but it's almost as though you know, your wonderful question earlier about the challenges yeah. I feel that that challenge is now a strength in strength, this environment yeah. You know, yeah. because it's it's about listening and it's about creating space yes it's about discerning and having um, a discerning eye over what we select and, and leading that selection but I think that that ability to give space for others and that desire for other people to flourish mm-hmm. really gives this a particular character I think yeah of course and um, it's a big job being, you know, the curator of Africa and African diaspora fashion at such a reputable institution as the VNA, um, is there anything you're looking to or working on bringing into this space in this role? I think um, while the role was devised to allow the museum to open its holdings um, to, on the one hand, reanimate some of the things that are already there. So, for example, we have a collection of African textiles. It's to reanimate that and tell layered stories about that. But then it's also to collect works that speak from Africa and the African diaspora, words that speak to its creativity through fashion and textiles. And so I feel that in my time at the museum, I want to start building foundations for the future. You know, I'm conscious that I won't be there forever and I'm conscious that there'll be people coming behind me, just as I've come, you know, after other people have, I feel other people have dug the foundations that I'm now putting some roots down into. So it's about laying out a collecting strategy that incorporates African fashions and textiles, incorporates those of the diaspora as well. But a key thing for me is to tell layered stories from those pieces and to look back as well because I feel that that's one of the perhaps the absences in the archive at the moment yeah. um, are the stories the details of what fabrics are for example are there but I want also to get the voices of people that um, have lived experience the voices of people that still make still wear some of those fabrics yeah. how can we bring those stories into what we have How can we open our net wider um, for future collecting? So what I'd love to see when my my time at the V&A is done, I'd love to see that there is, you know, a foundation to a foundation that is a collection of African and African diaspora fashions and textiles. I'd like to see that there's a way of working that incorporates the foregrounding of African and African diaspora voices that almost puts um, blackness at, at its centre and speaks from this place of us rather than other. So I'd yeah. like to see this new way of working fully incorporated in. And I would love to see, you know, an army of researchers and artists and young creatives coming and wanting to be a path to see the things that are there and for 
you know, people of colour to own. You know, we do own the museum. You know, we all pay our taxes. It's our museum too. You know, <laughs> I want I want young people yeah. to come to the museum and get inspired. I was asked um, for another interview to share something from my childhood. Oh, okay. That I want to pass on to young people. And I couldn't actually find the object because it's just buried, you know, in my spare room. But I have a school report from when I was about eight or nine. And my form teacher said, Christine's creative, take her to museums. So I want people to see what oh. we're doing at the v Yeah. And think, I need to take my child to the V&A. I need yeah. them to be inspired. This idea of take them to the museums because it's our museum and we will be inspired and empowered by being there. That's what I'd like to achieve. Yeah, that's so inspiring. Um, I, I can't wait to see what you do. Thank you. And then if I've got to the last question. We've oh God, it's almost an hour. We've had such a great wow. time. <laughs> it's gone by so quickly. It's um, yeah and I know you've kind of touched on this before um, but I just wanted to ask for from your experience what words of wisdom you would give to students aspiring to do the work that we do and early career and emerging fashion educators like myself doing the work what would you tell us? I would say find a way of working that suits you because it's 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 you know it's it's a hard work you know it's mm-hmm. not always easy so find a way that that suits you and find your voice within it and allow that to power up your research you know so there are people that might be more visual for example there might be people that are more theoretical there might be yeah. people that combine two so allow your natural way of working to drive the style of research how you approach your research and I think try to, I almost want to say try to keep going. Don't give up. Just keep going and trust. Trust that um, this is important work and there should be space for many voices. I think all too often there can be an assumption that, oh, there can only be a handful of scholars of colour. No, you know, there's, there's, it's a, you know, it's a broad field and there can be many opinions, many perspectives brought to bear on it. And your research, your perspective, your view is valid. It's just yeah. as valid. So do your research, do the reading, understand the history. So, so look at who came before you and use that to propel yourself forward. That's amazing advice, Christine. Thank you so much. It's been so great to have this chat with you I've learned so much and I hope those that are listening have enjoyed this chat as much as I have and yeah that's it for today thank you for joining me Christine I hope you've had thank a good you. time thank you to everyone for listening 